So, this morning, we are going to be in Lesson 6. Roman's not here today, so I'm filling in for him. I don't know if you gave you a heads up on that last week or not. All right. So this morning's lesson is going to be on the doctrine of salvation, and we're going to begin by considering the fact that salvation, our salvation, the salvation of every believer is solely uh, the sovereign work of God. We don't contribute anything to our salvation. We're also going to look at conversion, uh, how an individual actually transforms from being an unbeliever to a believing follower of Christ. And then we're going to consider what the Word says uh, about evidence of genuine faith or genuine salvation. So before we do that, let's, uh, let's start with prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning to learn more from your Word, to learn of the great salvation that you have worked for us. The fact that um, we should humbly acknowledge that we contribute nothing to our salvation. It is all your work and by your grace and your mercy. And just pray that you would grow our awe of you through that and our thankfulness for what you have accomplished on our behalf. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So now, before we get started into what you have on your uh, study guide there, I want to review what you may have learned about the depravity of man last week. I think you got into it last week or in previous lessons, uh, but I want to go into it a little bit more. Why it's impossible for us to contribute anything to our salvation in our wicked, depraved, helpless condition, because that's what the condition is. So this is important because it really lays the groundwork for why it's absolutely necessary for salvation to be a sovereign work of God. And I'm going to reference a, a lot of passages. I'm going to read through a lot of passages that are not in your notes. Uh, so you'll have to write them down if you want to reference those later. And I'm going to try to go through it pretty fast. So, first of all, and most significantly, <clears throat> I would think, prior to salvation, we are dead in sin. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Ephesians 2.1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among them, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dead in sin, following the devil, sons of disobedience, ruled by our sinful passions, and by nature, children of wrath. That's who we were. John Piper describes this spiritual deadness as being completely insensitive to the beauty, worth, and attractiveness 
of any spiritual reality. And that without a spiritual resurrection being made alive, we are incapable of seeing Christ and his work as desirable or compelling. And I would also add that dead men are simply incapable of any action, spiritual or otherwise. And one analogy which you may have heard um, before is if someone has drowned and is dead and rotting on the ocean floor and you throw a life preserver out to them, they're not going to reach out and grab it, okay, to be drawn to life and safety because they can't. They're dead. They're incapable of doing anything. And that is just one analogy for the biblical reality, reality of our dead spiritual state. Next, Scripture describes our hearts as evil. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Ecclesiastes 9, 3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. Mark 7, 21 through 23, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. We're also described as slaves of sin and Satan. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6, 17 and 20. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, slaves are not free to do as they wish. They have to do whatever their master requires of them. They are not free to do otherwise, and they are not capable of freeing themselves from slavery. Romans six seventeen says that our freedom from slavery from slavery to sin is because of God. Our thanks is to God because he, he is the one that frees us, not ourselves. Scripture also says that we loved the darkness. We don't just do sin. We're not just slaves to sin, but we love sin. John 3, 19 through 21, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest his work should be exposed. Next, we're described as being incapable of understanding the things of the Spirit, and that would certainly include the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So a dead man 
can't even begin to understand the gospel, can't begin to understand his state, can't begin to understand what Christ has accomplished on his behalf. We're also hostile to God and incapable of submitting to him. Romans 8, 6 through 8. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. A natural person or those in the flesh refers to anybody who has not been born again and is still dead in sin. And we don't seek God. We want nothing to do with him. Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understand, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Scripture also says that we're incapable of change. Job 14.4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one, and we are definitely unclean in our unregenerate state. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, no, you can't, okay? Matthew 7, 17 through 18, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. As a result, of our spiritual deadness, our blindness, our love of evil, our slavery to sin and Satan, our rebellion against God, our inability to change, we are under God's righteous wrath and bound for hell, and we can't do anything about it. So, how do we get from this hopeless, and it really is hopeless, spiritual state to believing in Christ for eternal life. How do we get from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, from being an enemy of God and under his wrath to being a child of God, having eternal life and all the benefits of being in Christ? How does that happen? Well, it should be obvious that we don't make it happen. We can't, but God can and he does. God makes it happen through his sovereign plan and work of salvation. Scripture says that God has a chosen or elect people that he has foreordained or predestined for salvation through Christ's death on the cross. God's choosing of who he will save took place in eternity past and was not dependent upon anything that the individual would do or deserve because no one would ever do anything good and nobody ever deserved any good grace or mercy from God. All we deserved was God's wrath. Now, here's some uh, New Testament passages that speak about God's uh, election, his choosing. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me, this is Jesus speaking, have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom 
the Son chooses to reveal him. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. Romans eight twenty-nine through thirty. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, Romans 8, 29 through 30 is that first reference in your notes. <clears throat> and if you're filling in the blanks, it would be whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. So what should be obvious in that text in particular is the fact that God does it all from first to last. It is all a work of God. We contribute absolutely nothing. Because God, and this is an important point, because God is solely responsible for our choosing, calling, justification, and glorification, which is our conformity to Christ ultimately, we can't undo that. We can't undo what he has done. Therefore, this is the foundation for the security of our salvation. All of these actions are also in the past tense, which means that our election, our salvation, glorification were all determined in eternity past before the creation of the world. You see this in Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And God's choosing, I said this before, is not based on any foreseen merit or good works on the part of the ones chosen. Romans 9.11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Romans 9.16, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion what we might desire but on God who has mercy. Romans 10, 20. I have been found by those who did not seek me. This is God speaking. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. God chooses. In addition, God's choosing is not based on God knowing in advance who would have faith, but rather, Faith is the result of and evidence of God's choosing or election. The clearest statement of this is in Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. I also want to point out that the word foreknew in Romans 8, 29 
does not just refer to God knowing certain facts about a person in advance, what a person will do uh, or say or think or whatever. It means, foreknew means that God had an intimate, personal, relational knowledge of the person. Uh, According to Wayne Grudem, when people know God in Scripture or when God knows them, it is speaking of a personal knowledge that involves a saving relationship. It's not just knowing facts about them. Okay, next, uh, let's look at God's purpose in salvation. It's also in your notes. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, God's purpose. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. That's Jesus. I already mentioned that God's choice, his election of us took place in eternity past. Then what was his plan for us? That's in verses 4 and 5, that we would be holy, blameless, and adopted through Christ. And what is the ultimate purpose? That's in verse 6, that he would receive praise and glory for this display of his grace. The ultimate purpose of salvation, this work of salvation, plan of salvation, is not about us. It is about God, God being glorified in the demonstration of his grace. Next. God implements his plan of salvation. It gets in your notes as well, right? Implements his plan of salvation. Christ comes, lives a sinless life for us. He's crucified, suffering the penalty for our sins, and is resurrected in victory over sin and death. The gospel is preached, and the elect are saved. Now, again, man's spiritual condition uh, from Ephesians 2.1, I think this is really the main reason that man cannot contribute anything to his salvation because he is spiritually dead, dead in sin. And since man is dead in sin, God must act to save because dead men and women can't do anything. Now, I want to go over a few things at this point that, again, are not in your notes, but I think that they are important to include So, Scripture describes different aspects of how God brings the elect to saving faith. First, the necessity of a spiritual rebirth, which we also refer to as regeneration. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. John 3, verses 3 and 6 through 7. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So in our physical birth, we're born spiritually dead because of sin. Spiritually dead blind in rebellion against God, and we have to be reborn spiritually. 
Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This is what the Spirit of God does in the miracle of our rebirth. He gives life where there was none. The Holy Spirit wakes us from death to life so that we can see and respond to the truth and the beauty of Christ. And then Jesus compares the work of the Spirit in the new birth to the blowing of the wind. It blows where it wishes, not where we wish. The point is, the Spirit is free to give life to whoever He chooses. We don't cause Him to respond or act. How could we cause Him to respond or act? We're dead. We can't do anything. So we have to be born again, made spiritually alive. This is not something that we have any control over. Just as you had no control over your physical birth, you have no control over your spiritual birth, rebirth. Dead people don't make themselves alive. It is solely the work of God through His Spirit. He makes us alive. Now, another aspect of God bringing the elect to saving faith is the irresistible call of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Those who are among the elect, the called, will always respond in saving faith. This is not the general call to repentance and faith through the preaching of the gospel. That can be rejected, but it is the irresistible, effective call to the elect that brings the dead to life, replaces hearts of stone with hearts of flesh so that the beauty of Christ can be seen and responded to. John 6, 37 speaks to the certainty of faith for those chosen and called. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And Jesus says in 6:44 that the Father draws people, and that would be the elect, those chosen and called, to Christ. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, back to your notes. More on the Spirit's work. John 16, 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Spirit brings about conviction of sin. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 25. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So what has to happen before someone uh, can know the truth? And this would be speaking primarily about the truth of the gospel. There has to be repentance. And who grants that? God grants repentance. And I want to add another text here. Uh, It's not in your notes. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, 
And this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So even the faith that we place in Christ and his finished work is not something that we possess inherently. It's not something that we generate on our own. Even that saving faith that we place in Christ is given to us by God. All a work of grace. Now back to the notes, John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So who gives us the right to become children of God? Jesus, God the Son. He gives that right, and it's not because of our birth or blood. You might say our ethnicity or lineage. It's not because we're Jews or, or anything else. And it's not because of our work or effort. That's the will of the flesh. And it's not because of any personal volition that we have. That's the will of man. Then God justifies the believer. In other words, he declares him not guilty of the debt or penalty for sin, and that's because of Christ and what Christ accomplished on the cross. Romans 4, 25 through 5, 1, Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we say, well, he says we're justified by faith. Yeah, but God gave us that faith that we are justified by. Okay. Now, who causes growth in the believer, spiritual uh, maturity or Christ-likeness? 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God is the one who grows us. And who will resurrect us in the last day, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. God will resurrect us. And then Romans 8, 29 through 30, again, remember, states that God will conform us to the image of Christ. And Philippians 3, 20 and 21 states this as well. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We will be made like him, and finally he will glorify us, and we will glorify him. Again, all the work of God. Now, in your notes at the bottom of page three, you see the summary of the story about how Moses uh, put this image of a snake on a pole and people who had been bitten could look at it and be healed. This prefigures what Christ would accomplish on the cross for believers. As we look to Christ, we are healed from the consequences of sin. So walking through the basic steps in conversion or that transformation from death to life, from an unbeliever to a believer, from a child of the devil to a child of God. First, there is the conviction of sin, which you already looked at, which the Spirit works through 
the law. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law, we become aware of how sinful we are before a holy God, compared to a holy God. And then, like the Jews in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 37, we experience sorrow over sin and a desire for forgiveness and reconciliation. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Is it the same response uh, as a tax collector in Luke 18, 13? He knows he's a sinner. He knows he deserves God's judgment, so he cries out to God for mercy. And then 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10 says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So, like the people in Acts and the tax collector, the person who God calls, draws to himself, and the Spirit works in their heart, they have their eyes open to their sin, they will repent, and that repentance leads to salvation. Your handout has a brief definition of repentance, which is turning away from sin, turning to God, turning from unbelief to belief in Christ, turning from rebellion to submission to Christ. And that turning to Christ is turning to Christ in faith for salvation, trusting in all that he is as God the Son and trusting in his work on the cross, his death and resurrection to pay the price for our sin and to save us. Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When it refers to the name of the Lord, the name in Hebrew culture represented all that that person is. So calling on the name of the Lord, calling on all that Jesus is. In Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is not just an intellectual belief or agreement with facts because the demons have that. But as the definition at the top of page 5 says, this is trusting in, clinging to, embracing, and holding on to Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross as the sole object of our faith and the only source of our salvation. And remember, we're only able to do this because we were chosen by God, regenerated, called, drawn, granted repentance, given the gift of faith, justified, and ultimately glorified by God. It is all a work of God from first to last. And then Romans 8, 1 and 2 tells us the result. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, 
We are no longer condemned, no longer under God's wrath. We are set free from sin and death. And Romans 6.18 says, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness, which means we don't have to sin anymore. And if we say that we do, well, then we're calling God a liar. We don't have to sin anymore. We can live in obedience to Christ. We can live righteous lives because we've been set free and we are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then Romans 6, 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So our conversion, our turning from sin and unbelief to faith in Christ frees us from slavery to sin. The consequences of sin restores us to a right relationship with God, and it results in us being adopted into his family, conformed to Christ's likeness, and granted eternal life in his presence forever. God is sovereign over salvation, and when an unbeliever comes to Christ in repentance and faith, they are set free, granted eternal life, transformed into Christ's likeness as the Spirit sanctifies them. How can you know for certain that you or some other professing believer is truly saved? We're going to consider three evidences of genuine faith or genuine salvation from Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 4. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So, faith that works, love that labors, and hope that endures are evidences of genuine salvation. First, faith that works. I'm going to look at a couple of other passages in Scripture. James 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 3.8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So, genuine faith and salvation will be evident by the fact that believers are working, working for God's purposes, pursuing kingdom priorities, using their gifts to minister to the body of Christ and doing gospel work. can't do this on your own. It's not something you do independently or by willpower. This is empowered by God's grace and indwelling spirit. Again, even our work is a work of grace. <clears throat> and it doesn't contribute in any way to our salvation. It is evidence of saving faith. It's evidence of our salvation. Genuine salvation will also be characterized by love for Christ and for his people. And that will be manifested again by working and serving others, particularly within the body of Christ. Hebrews 6.10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook overlook your work 
and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The love that believers have for God and for one another motivates our service. It's not something that we have naturally. It's given to us by God, just like our repentance, our faith, our ability to work, and even our love for one another is a gift from God. Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And a true believer, someone truly saved, will be characterized by love for, for one another, for other believers, love for the church. 1 John 4, 7 through 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So genuine love is evident not in what we say, but what we do, ministering to and serving others within the body. <clears throat> 1 John 3, 18 and 19, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Okay, last evidence <clears throat> of genuine salvation is hope, hope that endures, that lasts to the very end, regardless of the trials, the circumstances, the disappointments, the tragedies that we may experience in this life. Jesus said in Matthew 10, and you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that hope that enables us to endure to the end of life is a hope that is firmly fixed on God and the salvation that we have been granted in Christ. 1 Timothy 4.10, for this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And a few final passages that describe the enduring hope of genuine believers, Galatians 5, 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Titus 3, 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The enduring hope that we have is hope in the full realization of our salvation, our glorification, and eternal life in the presence of our Lord and Savior. Those who are truly saved look forward to that day with eager anticipation. And one final text that restates all three of those evidences of salvation is Colossians 1, 4, and 5. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So a faith that works, love that labors, love for God and for the church that is manifested in service to one another, and an enduring hope in God and the salvation, the eternal life that we will enjoy with Jesus forever. Those are the evidences of genuine salvation. Those are the things that should 
reassure us or convict us if we uh, do not see those evidences. And the main thing is remember that, that salvation is absolutely a work of God. We contribute nothing to our salvation. Conviction of sin, repentance, faith, all of those things. Our love for God, for one another, it's all a work of God, totally dependent on His grace and mercy. And that's it for today. Next week, I believe you're going to be looking at the uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit. Any questions? Thank you. I'll have to go back and find it. All right, I'll let you know. Okay, who? So I think the, the most common argument is from Romans 8, 29 and 30, <clears throat> whom he foreknew, and they would argue that foreknowledge is knowing who would come in faith. And so God chooses based on that, knowing who, in fact, will express faith. The problem is everything else in Scripture dictates against that, primarily our condition before salvation. We're incapable of coming to God in faith. Because we're dead, because we're rebels, because we're evil, all those things that we went through. So if God looks down, which he does, you know, God's not restricted by time. He sees who will choose him. Nobody. That's what he sees. That's his foreknowledge, huh? Oh, absolutely. Still responsible. Yes. Well, two things, too. I think people do not have a, a deep and truly biblical understanding of how sinful sin is and how holy God is and how dead we really are. They have, they have a view of man that has, been, that has been influenced by humanism that, you know, so I was a teacher for... 23 years, and I would hear this all the time. You know, well, kids are basically good. No, they're not. <laughs> Golly. Oh, yeah. Free will. Well, yeah. Um, because they want a free will. People, people want to believe that they have a free will. So I would say that, yeah. Actually, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Freedom of the Will, and I think he expresses it the best. You know, he says that you do have a free will. The problem is, with a free will, you will freely choose what you desire most. And based on all that scripture I gave you, the only thing you desire is sin and rebellion and evil 
So yeah, you have free will, and you will freely choose to rebel against God always. You will never choose God. No? Okay. All right, you're dismissed. We can talk later if you have any more questions. Exodus chapter 4.